Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for this episode, which today is another installment in the Focus Researchers Talk. The Focus Researchers Talk is a bank of talk by those researchers who have enjoyed particular success in publishing their work. My guests on Researchers Talk tell us how they turn the data and the ideas into the many papers of impact which they have published. Today I'll be talking with Bo Lee. Associate Professor in the Computer Science Departments at the University of Chicago and at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Bo's research focuses on trustworthy machine learning with an emphasis on robustness, privacy, generalization, and the interconnections between. Bo's research group have explored different types of adversarial attack. They've developed robust learning systems and they work to directly benefit applications in computer vision, natural language processing, autonomous driving, and federated learning systems. So let's begin today's episode. Bo Lee on Researchers Talk. Hi, Bo. Welcome to the show. Hello, Daniel. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to discuss here. Very good. Um, Bo, this is, um, as I say to all of my interviewees, more an interview about how you research rather than what you actually research, but please feel free to illustrate with papers or content details. Nonetheless, I, I kind of break the interviews down into three equal parts, one about scientific networking, the other about reading, and the other about writing. Perhaps we'll just pick right up there at the end about writing. Um, you have published this year quite successfully in SOK or SOC, as some people call it, Certified Robustness for Deep Neural Networks. And it seems to be resonating quite well with the community. Could you maybe say a word about the um, germination of this paper and the production of this paper? Um, because people who write a SOC paper in SOK are writing a sort of literature review with added twists. And it's a format that is... 
is not so usual. So maybe you have some insights into how that is done. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, since we work on trustworthy machine learning, which emphasizes the red teaming part first, as you said, generating a lot of different attacks, and then enhance the model's safety against those attacks, and finally provide certification for those models, uh, so that we don't need to worry about the future potential attacks, adaptive attacks, and we can have a theoretical understanding of the model trustworthiness. So that's the part for certification. And for this SOK paper, we focus on the certified robustness for deep neural networks. Since it's important, it's also challenging, and it's important for the communities to have a, a, a SOK like this. And as you said, first of all, for the standard SOK criteria or um, types of papers, it's slightly different with traditional survey paper, in, uh, meaning that it's not only will survey a bunch of papers, but also it emphasizes the novel um, like categorizations of existing paper or providing a novel uh, like implementation or additional findings and uh, 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 like interest conclusions or things so that it can like advance this area a little bit more. So in this paper, we actually first look at all the um, existing certified robustness approaches and categorize them into uh, based on their criteria, for example, uh, like the statistic-based and the deterministic-based, etc. And then we provide a unified platform for certifying the robustness of deep neural networks, meaning that if you use a link to go to the website, actually given any neural networks trained with whatever data you have, and you can use the, give the constraints you prefer, and you will be able to call different uh, approaches and uh, call the API to provide the certification for your model. So that it's not only um, uh, like a paper, but also a toolbox uh, or a platform that people can use to provide to get the certification for their neural networks. So hopefully this will be uh, useful and um, for different researchers if they focus on, say, developing good algorithms for certification, but want to compare with other algorithms, or they want just want to develop a good neural network and want to certify how robust it is, then they can all easily use this uh, toolbox as, a, say, a black box. So, yeah, that's the goal of this paper. And uh, as you said, a lot of uh, people actually leveraging it and uh, um, pro, uh, like get a robust certification for their models. So, yeah, and uh, we are keep maintaining the uh, the platform as well so hopefully it will be useful for many researchers yeah yeah the, um, it's it's a lot to ask of one paper isn't it uh, what goes into an sok i mean i i've just noted three things i mean clearly it's a literature review so it has this survey type element it has these novel aspects that must be there Categorization seems to very often be one of them, which which is also the case in your paper. But then finally, also what you list there, this toolbox or this platform that's there for people to carry on this work or to be able to certify um, correctly according to your new categorization. Maybe maybe we'll pick up this idea of categorization because it just so often shows up in SOKs. Um, what is it that? let's say, inspired in your case, that approach to categorizing what was out there. 
because I think this is one of the biggest nuts that needs to be cracked for a person who's picking up an SOK in a new area or an area they feel needs to be organized and trying to figure out, all right, well, what is the perspective I take so that it holds for the next 10, 20 or further on into the future years? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So we since there are many um, approaches in this domain, uh, uh, since it's a very important topic, so we find it's very important to categorize them so that we can know which branch, for example, have what properties and how we should, like what is empty and uh, uh, what is almost done, like we can get conclusion. That's um, the main motivation for us to get um, uh Te- uh, taxonomy or categories for these different approaches for certified robustness. And uh, we categorize them into determinist and probabilistic as a very top level, mainly because the output of them are very different. So the deterministic give us 100% certification, while the probabilistic give us, uh, say, with high probability uh, of the certification. Uh, well, these two obviously have different outcome uh, in terms of certification. They also have very different properties. For instance, for probabilistic certification, they can be very scalable. Um, they can scale up to like large neural networks, for example, for image net level of data set or things. But for deterministic verification, it's very hard. It almost cannot scale up to image net level. So that also makes us to think it's important to separate them. So even for downstream users, they know at different, um, say, applications, domains, data, uh, like what branch or approach they can select for their certification goal. Yeah. Right. And and could you give us a sense in in the actual writing process of the paper, the drafting, or even even just the whiteboard sessions while you were meeting perhaps with uh, the other co-authors or co-researchers on the project as to how you hit upon uh, that uh, that key, that those different outputs as being, let's say, the real basis for your taxonomy. Because again, this this is where um, this communication end of this podcast comes in, where basically we say, yeah, it's through the writing and through the discussing that some of these ideas are actually generated. They're not just falling into researchers' laps. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear a bit of what you remember of the process of of how that initial division, that top-level division, was perhaps um, initially discovered. Sure. Yeah, that's a great so, uh, question. So basically, actually, this paper is pretty large. It took us almost like more than one year, uh, uh, including writing, developing, and discussion. And for the taxonomy itself, we have changed it uh, like a couple of times as well uh, to hopefully to make it clear. Um, so the process is like um, I have a, a, like my collaborator, my student uh, who working uh, who works. On on uh, trustworthy robustness. And then we, um, he has developed the several certified robustness approaches and uh, we have uh, been doing literature anyway for helping uh, our own research. And we find that it's 
like we actually really hope there would be a platform or a survey like this so that we can benefit from it we can get compare different approaches easily we can know their pros and cons limitations application domains uh etc etc and uh, there isn't such a thing that we can refer to so in the end we think we should do it so that we can benefit our future research and hopefully benefit other uh, research teams as well therefore we actually start as you said a whiteboarding indeed and then we like basically bottom up list out different approaches we have and try to um, categorize them into different uh, uh, taxonomies and uh, sort out their pros and cons and uh, slowly uh, we have some pictures uh, clear in the sense that some methods are clearly belonging to one approach like they are all say complete verification incomplete verification meaning, uh, you know, sufficient and uh, necessary conditions are not. And then when the picture becomes slightly more and more clear, we again uh, use a top-down approach, meaning we have the summarization and then we categorize them. And then we see if we have additional approaches, can we fit in the current categorization or not? And if not, we have to add a new branch, uh, have to think about whether uh, there should be some new categories or whether there are enough uh, approach in that category to uh, make it as a mm, single branch or should we uh, like emphasize that branch need more attention, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So basically we have several iterations over it and then uh, we finally finalize um, a structure that we agree and we see all the existing and the potential future approaches uh, we aim for can fit in into this uh, categorization. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's 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 very vivid picture of, of of how the whole taxonomy was was compiled. And I'm interested in, in just one more element of that process, and that's let's say between the actual meetings, between what we were calling the whiteboard sessions and so on. Because I'm going to imagine, Bo, that these ideas follow you home, that when you're, you know, off campus or doing something else, that ideas are occurring to you as to, oh, we might do this, or we might switch that over there, add on a new branch and so on. And this is precisely where I, I, I work with scientists at the moment, computer scientists, helping them use writing and text generally for their research purposes. And this is one of those moments where I would advise them, then engage with those ideas by writing about them. Even if it's in, you know, a more informal type context of journaling or something like that. So, so I guess my question to you is, is, is this something that you also work with, like writing outside of meetings, writing to organize your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I think uh, for me, sometimes my most productive time is working, like when I uh, working uh, home and uh, uh, like uh, working around or things. Because at that time, uh, I can think rather than like when I sit in front of a computer or a whiteboard, I need to write down things. But when uh, I'm working, I, I can think uh, in my brain, as you said, actually, um, to me, I think my habit is that uh, the thing or the idea or the, for example, the taxonomy, the structure of things are in the in my mind, so that I can think um, uh, about it and like move the box around and then like think what is left, what is wrong. Because when at that time, I think a lot of things usually come up 
in terms of what I have missed, uh, what things may have conflicts. And uh, yeah, so between the whiteboarding, actually, I think there are a lot of exercising, uh, which is very helpful, um, where I use, for example, the current version of taxonomy and think about, oh, today I read some new papers or uh, I'm thinking some new ideas or potentially new ideas, whether they can fit in the taxonomy and whether if I read this taxonomy as a researcher, can I leverage it to, you know, add a new branch or to help my research, what I'm missing in the whole big picture or the platform. So by asking myself the questions and the thinking and putting the structure in my mind itself and just to think about it without, uh, you know, look at the computer screen or whiteboarding, I think a lot of new things come up, actually. And then I have to immediately write it down on my phone or a piece of paper, otherwise I will forget later. And then the pieces, thing, pieces of things will come up together. And then um, I think that's between the meetings. And I think those exercises are actually very helpful uh, from the day-to-day thinking. Uh, yeah. That, that's really interesting. So, so you're sort of manipulating mental space. You've got these ideas, you're moving the branches around, trying different taxonomies, asking questions of it and see if it, it holds up and really is then leverageable, as you say. And then you go, when, when you feel that you've hit upon something, then you go and write that down. Is, is that sort of the, yeah. the sequence? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So kind of like as a reviewer, as a researcher, question myself about the previous version and see what is missing and then put it around and then see what's a better version. Yeah, I think that in general uh, is very helpful to me. Great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe uh, one last word on writing before we turn a little bit uh, to the way that you read to do your research. We've talked a lot about SOKs and your particular uh, success now as an SOK, which has just been published at S&P. Um, maybe a word or two about how you would approach the central idea of a, I'll just call it, quote unquote, normal paper. <laughs> so a paper that doesn't have added on to it all of these extra expectations of a of an SOK. What, what is like the moment from, I have an idea, I have an idea that's publishable. Is there any way that you can sort of put your finger on that, that a project has reached the stage where we need to start looking at venues? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. I actually always talk with my collaborators and students about it in the sense that sometimes students will come to me and say, oh, there's an idea I want to work on it. And uh, to me, sometimes I may feel it's not mature enough and publishable and we need to think more. Uh, uh, so I think that's a very important uh, timing to have the uh, so-called kind of research taste to justify the uh, novelty and the contribution and things of the work. So usually, uh, for example, um, I in terms of coming up research novel ideas, I usually read and think and uh, like basically when reading all the related papers and looking at their limitations and uh, uh, think the potential uh, like solutions and things, that's how at the very beginning helped me to come up with uh, novel ideas. But obviously, sometimes the idea is not like large enough yet uh, for uh, a good publication or things. So I uh, usually, um, once I have the idea that something I want to really work on, I'll put it down, like writing a piece of paper, and then write the story in terms of, uh, say, 
what's the motivation, what's the potential impact of it, and uh, <clears throat> mathematically, for example, how uh, it can be used for other uh, analysis or things, and empirically, how um, the findings could be uh, interesting and different with existing findings, and it could be uh, used to support existing uh, observations which haven't been, you know, supported by a lot of um, theorems or experiment. So I think one key is to connect, like first have the novel idea and second is connecting it with the uh, existing uh, observations or uh, analysis to see how helpful or how um, uniqueness uh, it has. And that will boost my uh, confidence to uh, like build a high quality novel work uh, for the publication work. That's that's wonderful. I, I mean, I, I discern there and listening to you, uh, you use the word story. So when you start to notice that there's something unique about the idea, something workable about the idea, you start to turn to its story. But what I like is that you unpack what you mean by that, because sometimes people just throw around the word story and you wonder what exactly do they mean? And, and I heard there are four different things, the motivation for the study, the ultimate impact, the mathematical usability, for lack of a better word. So how broadly can this be applicable? And then in the empirical realm, you talk about, well, how does it relate to other results? And you talk about how does it support perhaps other observations, which lack as yet a good explanation? I mean, that's a wonderfully encapsulated view as to how a checklist, if you like, how to vet an idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think that uh, one checklist is uh, indeed very important. And I tend to do this practice with every collaborator and student. In the end, I think it's very fruitful. So usually we sort out the story by writing out the list following the checklist we have, like their contribution to existing observations, analysis, etc., etc. And then we'll see if the, like, the list is not uh, like comprehensive enough. So without saying it's not... Uh, like uh, ready yet but then if the list is very thorough and uh, yeah everyone agree on the same page that yeah this is great work and paper we should approach it it's definitely publishable so it's also very easy convincing for for others uh, rather than say oh i think the idea is not good enough it's less convincing especially for uh, like a junior student who hasn't uh, you know be clear with uh, their taste yet but once i list out i don't need to convince them they will immediately see that i think it's also very helpful for um, practice, especially for uh, junior researchers. And you've already mentioned this, which brings us already over into the area of, of how you read, that you're finding out some of these answers in the literature itself, of course. I mean, that's the base upon which all future research is, is being built and built up from and built out from perhaps sometimes also in totally different directions, unexpectable directions. But but what I would like to hear from you, because you've you've given us this this wonderful definition of the story and how you use it to vet ideas, can you reverse engineer a little bit back how it is that you're reading through papers to find that sort of information? So for example, how are you reading papers on a regular basis to realize, well, what are the other results or unexplained observations or poorly explained observations or the mathematical theorems or formula that are out there in this particular area so that you have them at the ready when you need to vet a new idea and so on, if you see what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that's um, reading is very important. And uh, on the very high level, I have two categories things of uh, reading. One is the area that I'm not very familiar with, but I'm interested in. And is, one is the uh, area that I'm very inter- uh, familiar with. So take the second one first, which is, for example, it's an area that I'm very familiar with. Then for reading, I have very uh, clear targets. Uh, for instance, I usually read, say, from trustworthy machine learning uh, perspective, I read like uh, new papers um, coming out every day and I prioritize uh, some um, groups. I really like the work which is very related. And then uh, because it's an area that I'm very familiar with, I can usually read very fast in terms of what's um, new analysis they have and uh, uh, what's a new technique uh, there are to help certain sort of analysis and what's the new findings from the experiments, etc. And usually I have a, um, like a doc note down things uh, in case I forget, uh, I put down the paper and just write a couple of sentences after the paper if I really like some of the points of the paper, either theoretically or empirically. Um, and then it's easy for me to go back to find which paper uh, I uh, mean for myself. And it's uh, helpful uh, putting there. Sometimes I can go back to uh, check. I, I usually have some impression like, oh, there is someone doing something and I may forget which paper it is. So coming back to such a list will be very helpful. Um, for the areas that I I'm interested in but may not be that familiar with, I usually start with a survey paper um, in that area to um, like read through like what have been done there. And then for some important uh, like component of that survey, I will go into that component and read all the cited paper in that part, which I'm interested in, so that again, from the uh, top-down perspective, I can know uh, on the high level, what people are doing, what's approach, and then know what's a novel approach in this area and what hasn't been done. I find that's usually very helpful because as a people who, for example, not clearly, uh, like uh, completely working in the, that area, usually you can come up with very uh, interesting novel uh, ideas because you are not, you know, bounded by the problems or the, 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 the challenges in that area. So sometimes you can think of something people feel it's impossible or infeasible but somehow you can uh, work through it and uh, like make it work so i find that's actually very interesting based on my past experience yeah you uh, probably do the uh you're interested in but not familiar with sort of reading at a at a different pace than you do, as you said, your specialized, very familiar, um, close to your research focus sort of reading. Um, so you said there it can be quite quick, but I would imagine in the the second sort of reading that you're talking about, it, it takes a bit longer. Is that, is that, is that yes, right? Yes, exactly. Starting from the um, survey paper, then you find, oh, you, a lot of people you haven't seen before. It's a little bit upset. Yeah, but it's fine. It's slightly slower and then read and then dig into each uh, like cited work and then after a couple not couple like uh, several papers or maybe like half of the paper cited in that domain then the rest half will be relatively more efficient yeah that's 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 i find an important point to make because i have the feeling that early career researchers i've worked with quite a few on on doing text work together have uh, the sense that you know all writing and all reading should happen at the same pace and i think their impression of the pace is often 
more accelerated than than is realistic for very many people. But I mean, you you give us a very differentiated view. I mean, you've got those two categories of reading where the other, the one where you're more familiar is is, is something you more or less absorb, <laughs> whereas whereas the other is sort of a conscious effort, a conscious sort of proceeding through the text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Because I think that's very um, uh, like uh, obvious from my perspective in the sense that for the paper that in my area, actually, I don't need to read the whole paper because essentially, for for example, from related work or introduction of those things, I should be already very familiar. I even uh, I don't need to read the related work. I know most of the work there. I mainly focus on their method or uh, or sometimes even like. Uh, the structure of the method is I'm also familiar. I just want to look at one, uh, say, approach that they solve one equation or they solve one uh, problem that hasn't been solved before. So in this sense, it's actually very fast because I only need to focus on one two important point. But for the area that's um, not in my area, then I need to read from beginning to the end. And uh, I also like to read something like related work or intro as well so that I get more understanding about uh, this area and how people think about the problems and what's the motivation and, uh, uh, what's the real world impact and what others are doing in terms of solving similar problems. So that definitely take longer uh, in the sense of reading everything on, and also need to understand every framework, every techniques. So that will take longer. Um, but I think uh, it's fine for uh, earlier uh, career researchers because uh, I think that's a very important foundation to build up um, so that for later on, uh, it can be f- more efficient. If you don't do it at the beginning, uh, to me, I feel uh, you always pay the price in the later to set up those foundations. So I think we anyway need to pay that much of effort. Just like I think there is a 1,000 hour uh, theory that if you uh, focus on one area for 1,000 hours, you always become experts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's work to be put in. Yeah. And and what I also like is what you talk about the sort of work that you put in even to the very familiar speedy sort of reading, because you, you mentioned there, the log that you like to keep of, you know, the basic idea, the, uh, the problem that they tried to solve, or maybe actually, before I start guessing at what you put in the log, what, what would be some of the things that you put into this log after these sorts of papers, which are so core to your area of research 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so for example, for the list, uh, I told my student and collaborator to do the similar thing as well. Is that for every paper, we put a link and then put um, my own, like our own thought to it. Maybe it's just some bullet, like say, oh, this paper uh, is very good in terms of using like some techniques or some major limitations of the paper, or, or even some potential ideas following up this paper or something. Just put it there and. Um, uh, like whenever I come across similar problems or similar techniques or challenges, um, you always have some impressions about, oh, you have read something related, or maybe you forget which paper it is. Then you can easily uh, look back. Uh, and sometimes I write a small paragraph of summarization of the paper as well uh, there. And then we can, uh, later on, while I write related work or something, for instance, I can also go back to the list and uh, take part of the my notes from there and put in the rating work because that's the key um, understanding of the paper when I read itself. Um, so there are various ways uh, to use the list. Uh, for example, using it for related work and using it to, um, like later I find a new paper, I say, oh, I remember someone did similar thing, uh, how effective it is or whether this approach is feasible or not. I can also go back to the list and uh, to take a careful look at their result, the analysis and things to see whether it supports my hypothesis. So um, yeah, I think there are various times that I want to go back to the list to check and uh, confirm something. And that brings me to one last question on reading, which um, again recurs amongst, um, I'd, I'd say, researchers at all levels, and and that is how to manage all of this. You've you've actually just given us a bit of an impression how it is that you do draw connections and make associations by by keeping such a meticulous uh, blog as uh, a log, excuse me, as you do, um, but. I mean, I think everyone can agree that there's too many papers that any human could possibly get their head around. Um, it, it's just being published at uh, such a massive rate that it's really hard to keep up. And I wonder what are maybe some of the tools or other techniques that you have to to manage that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Indeed, so I use some uh, like uh, graphical uh, like tools as well. For example, uh, notions and others. To if it's I mean if it's very a core area to me. Uh, after reading the papers, I will also try to uh, even not publishing it, but to make a taxonomy of it, just like the SOK paper, so that I myself have a structure in my mind. So. To me, I feel once you have a structure for the taxonomies and the related works, uh, it's very hard to forget them. But after I read like lots of papers, it's very easy to forget about them. So I usually, if it's a very core cool, uh, topic uh, to me, uh, in the end, after I read like lots of paper, have a list, uh, basically it's a laundry list. And then at some point, uh, I will take some time to revisit them and uh, like perform, uh, provide a taxonomy for them and put them into a graphical structure. Uh, and that graphical structure is in my mind so that later on when I need something, need some categories, branches, I can easily extract uh, from the memory. I think that's actually very helpful for me. Great. Wonderful tip. Thank you. Um, To move into the last third of our interview, this uh, covers the area of scientific network, as I like to call it. Um, Basically, what I mean by that is the social side of science. I mean, we've been talking a lot about print, writing, reading, papers, and so on. But as we all know, 
it's people who are creating these things, people that you work at the same institute with, collaborate with, correspond with, meet at conferences and and think good things of, bad things of, get along with, don't get along with. The list is endless, right? I mean, people are involved in science and that's that's kind of what I mean by that. And it's a part of science where I feel that in science education is not put into the forefront, but once you become a successful researcher, you realize how much in the forefront it is, the working relationships that you have and the people that you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the networking, research networking is very important because uh, you're usually ex- uh, inspired by others and during the talking and lots of ideas actually I came up um, the, during the discussion with others about uh, potential works or even just a random chat. So I think that's very important. Um, and in terms of how we uh, like, you know, collaborate and also know each other or start the collaboration or things, it's kind Kind of like uh, first of all conferences. I think it's very important. Therefore, um, I actually uh, usually send all my students to like big conferences in the core area so that we can um, talk with each other, present, um, and then uh, like for instance. Um, just a random chat sometimes is very helpful and that's one way and the other type is since we read a lot of papers and you know who is working in this area and uh, who uh, have the approach similar or similar principles and the taste etc and usually either people will reach out or I will reach out directly to say oh like what if this approach this and why not you do this and things and then we later will find oh uh, the discussion is very helpful and lead to new um, you know findings and things uh, yeah that's in general I find very helpful um, and a third thing is that giving talks I think for both junior and senior uh, researchers uh, I would say giving talks is very helpful because whenever you give talks there are a lot of people will ask questions and then those questions either become part of your uh, work your ablation study or your new ideas or those um, like people uh, who ask questions offline becomes the new collaborators and uh, uh, researchers uh, like to work together yeah mm-hmm. so these talks that you're referring to might just be in any sort of a context you're thinking so even at the university that the person happens to be working at or uh, more locally or um, uh, which 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 sorts of talks uh, do you have there in mind maybe? sure sure sorry yeah there are t- different types I'm thinking one is uh, definitely like the paper presentation or post presentation in conferences and second is for university wise there are different uh, research talks and uh, um, like you can go to different group and go to uh, like a different uh, uh, like uh, research uh, university usually have some centers and things for uh, like a invited talks and uh, workshops and the third is also industry level talks like uh, industry has a lot of research labs also have these types of seminars workshops and talks i think all of them is it's great to either give a talk or listen to a talk and ask questions and uh, join the discussion i think it's always helpful yeah oh, very good advice i mean i i see researchers and have seen researchers who may not value such opportunities as as you're uh, painting it there and I, and I think that's 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 good advice out there to them because I I can see where that comes from I mean when you just get a different perspective from even as you say in in an industry setting um it may spark an idea that you know otherwise wouldn't have occurred to you mm-hmm. yeah exactly um 
Yeah, then and 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 that gets me thinking because the different areas where that occurred to you immediately for collaborating. So at conferences, reaching out to authors, and then of course this last one, giving talks. The first two at the conferences or reaching out to authors seemed to sound more like they belonged to the core community of your research. So you would be reaching out perhaps to an author. Um, at another institute who was working on a very similar method, was trying to solve a very similar problem and so on. Is that so? Mm, for the res- uh, like the authors may or may not, yes, because if you are interested, for example, I read a new area of papers and uh, I may reach out to other researchers who may not exactly in the core area, that's also possible. And for conferences, actually, it's more flexible because in a big conference, for example, machine learning conference or security conference, there are actually various people working from different uh, uh, domains in terms of theory, uh, like like empirical or different applications of machine learning and different applications of security. So I think that's actually a very um, rich and uh, diverse and good community to to discuss to broaden uh, the uh, research uh, like uh, sites and the areas and interest yeah so that, that that actually comes back to something that's a bit similar as well to your slower reading if i might call it that way you find your way in a new uh, topic area from from a survey and so on and and as you said there it can well be that a person who's slightly on the outside of an area starts to notice combinations that the people well deep inside wouldn't. So I suppose what I'm asking is, are there any sort of practical measures when reaching out to other authors where you feel you have an idea, you feel you have an impetus to give them that you would that you would tell other researchers, that you would say, hey, this sort of an approach is better, whether it's at a conference or through an email or whatever, if you think back to some of your experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think uh, through conferences, sometimes it's easier because face-to-face discussion is always easier. And uh, through authors, uh, I think um, there are certain challenges, for example, um, like people may not have enough time to discuss all things, but I think in general it doesn't hurt to reach out and discuss. Especially you can put some core um, like uh, questions or ideas in, for example, email or things, so that it will raise interest. And also, it's sometimes very helpful to request a short meeting. Um, I find that discussion sometimes can make things more clear. Or if, say, is um, very uh, like uh, uh, concrete idea or question you want to have, I usually prefer, for example, t- people can have half page or one page or write up, and then you know when you, uh, the author receives an uh, email, you can directly like concretely know what it means so that you know how to reply and you know whether uh, it's a potential collaboration we should uh, discuss. Basically, it's just um, uh, become more efficient. Uh, so I would encourage to, in terms of reaching out, I usually put things as concrete as possible so that it saves the, the other author's time and also make the discussion uh, more efficient. This kind of brings us full circle, because if if you're talking about such finely crafted emails, half a page or something to maybe spark a potentially fruitful uh, collaboration, then we're dealing with text that you need to write again with, with great care, I would imagine. 
Mm. Um, yeah, but uh, I, I think it's a short one, like half page. So it's it's like usually motivation could be one sentence and then um, mainly the methodology part. So that uh, because I think it's actually helpful anyway for um, ourselves to sort things out so that we are clear. Maybe during the process of sorting things out, I'll find, oh, this may not be, you know, uh, good enough. Or uh, I may search more literature, find, oh, actually this idea has been more or less done or something. So I think it um, could be anyway helpful for us to, to figure out things ourselves as well. Yeah, yeah, no, I can definitely see that. And it's certainly a position that I would uh, support this idea of just using the writing to clarify for yourself. So, I mean, writing could be helpful even in collaborations or potential collaborations. Yeah, then, yeah, it's sure. very important. Writing and the reading and the speaking as well. Sometimes uh, some good researchers cannot deliver ideas very clearly. Uh, like, especially, for example, some of my students, like junior students, may not, you know, be able to like the idea is very good, but they cannot present it well. Uh, I think that's also a very important uh, capability that uh, need to enhance. I, I remember still like from the first day I do presentation, uh, how my advisor tell me, oh, where you should emphasize, where you should not, and you should do top down rather than dig into details too quick. I think these things all matter uh, in terms of helping to build up uh, efficient and effective research collaborations with others. Hmm. And this, uh, what you've just mentioned there, gets me in mind of maybe one last issue that's worth uh, exploring in, in scientific networks. And, and that's your role as a PI or as a leader of a research group. I mean, you've just said some of the important advice or mentoring that you've received uh, when it comes to, say, communication. Um, perhaps if you turn around and think of uh, your current work, as you've, you've mentioned your students a few times, but what would be some of the things when it came to, you know, production of papers, to just keep it as general as possible, that you really try to pass on as, let's say, either habits to have or views of the object of a paper to have or, or whatever it is that might be one of those pieces of advice or general, general viewpoints that you try to pass on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think in terms of writing papers and things, I uh, one advice I think is the logic uh, in terms of writing is super important. So um, I think usually there is a, I read some piece uh, like article before, I think it's uh, very helpful for some uh, research uh, later on is that sometimes, uh, for example, for um, like a junior student, they like to write paper in the sense, in the order of how they uh, develop things. Uh, for instance, usually we um, have an idea and we try idea one and it doesn't work well and we tr- uh, change a little bit, we try idea two, and it doesn't work well, and then idea three and it works. And then they follow this order to write paper, which is, not the, uh, r- the right order, I would say. So basically, um, usually people suggest top down and the other order, which is if my final proposed idea is idea three, even though it's the last idea I, I explored in my research process, I should present it first in when I write paper, say, okay, to solve this problem, I write uh, like pro- propose this idea three and what it is and uh, uh, how it performs. And then talk about the idea one and two as a kind of failure mode or ablation studies to show, or oh, if we do this, it won't work well because uh, how different it is with the proposed idea three and uh, 
why it doesn't work and give the insight and the observations. So that usually will be more uh, well received and more logical uh, rather than the, the other. So this is just one simple example of one types of process. So overall, I think a top-down Mm, structure in terms of a logical uh, writing of the presentation uh, is very important uh, in terms of writing. Um, yeah. Well, thank you very much for that, Bo. That is Bo Lee, and she is Associate Professor in the Computer Science Departments of the University of Chicago and Illinois. This is goodbye from me to Bo. Goodbye. Thank you. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on this focus of the podcast, Researchers Talk.